Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Acts, Acts, Matthew chapter 10. Looking again at exactly the same verses we looked at last week, and... I'd like to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to look at verses 16 through 42. That's through the end of the chapter. And then we will be done with Matthew 10, which is, I think, one of the hardest chapters in the Bible. If the Sermon on the Mount is hard, this is hard. So let's listen to the word of God together. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say, for it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, speak to us through your word this morning. I ask as I dwell on it in the presence of your people that you may allow 
this message not to be words alone, but may they be words that come with power and the work of the Holy Spirit accompanying them so that there is, there is conviction in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Years ago, I was in a, a, a class in seminary that was a joint class with Harvard Med School. Um, it was about, about death and, and new, new frontiers in medicine back in the 80s. And uh, I'll never forget the class. Everything about it was forgettable except, except for one day that kind of blew my mind and uh, has stuck with me ever since. And that day was the day that the professor at Harvard Medical School, who had become the Minister of Health for his native country, Bermuda, came and spoke to us about something none of us had heard of at the time, which was crack cocaine. And he said that crack cocaine was ripping his nation apart. He said it was coming here and that we would experience it as well. And he said that the the, the terrible thing about crack cocaine, I'm sure this is true of other drugs at this point, I'm sure it's true of the opiate crisis now, is that it combines positive and negative reinforcement in the same drug. So what it does, he said, is when you take it, you, it, it, it so affects, it's so rich in these pheromones and producing pheromones and in affecting the brain and the pleasure sensing areas that it actually is is an unbelievable high, he said, and, and what it does is it wipes out portions of the brain there. He says it, it, it makes it impossible to feel the next time you take it quite as high. And he said, so it gives you an incredible high, but he said then each time you do it, you don't go up quite as high, and he said in the baseline, after you get hooked on it, it goes down, and so you feel very bad when you're not on it, you feel increasingly bad but you go high and then low, and he says, and so a lot of things take you high and back to the baseline, but he said, this one takes you back below, and because of that, he said, it's tremendously, tremendously addictive. It's the kind of drug that the, the rats in the experiments will take until they die and ignore food. When you combine positive and negative reinforcement, you are giving great reason to do something. When you combine reward and punishment for uh, uh, the purpose of enforcing a, or reinforcing a certain type of behavior, you are you're hitting the mother load of, of, of sort of psychological and even spiritual power. And what we see in our passage is Jesus calling us to walk in a way that is, that is extremely painful. There's no question but that what is laid out before us here is painful. Especially painful in that it, he's very clear in these verses. I said last week that seven of these verses that we've just looked at, seven of the 26, over a quarter, deal with the cost that we'll pay in the nearest and dearest relationships of our family. But what he's saying in this whole passage is that we are going to be people set apart. We're going to be distinct, and that distinctness will lead to hostility and cost. And so what Jesus does in this passage is to, is to list a number of positive and negative reasons to do this. Very powerful positive reasons, very powerful negative reasons to live for him to confess him, to 
carry our cross, to be willing to carry our cross, no matter whether it brings us before the kings of the world, the governors of the Gentiles, or whether it leads us to be at odds with our own family. And so Jesus in this thing, he speaks about the cost and he says, I'm sending you out and I just want to walk through some of these costs that he lists and the, the reasons he gives for paying the cost, both positive and negative. He says, I'm going to send you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves. That's, that's a really, uh, that's a little bit of a frightening metaphor, isn't it? <laughs> to be a sheep, a lone sheep in the midst of wolves. And I'm sending you out like that, Jesus says. This is the life he's called us to. He, he states it very clearly. I'm sending you out. You're going to be alone. And if you live for me, you will be persecuted. If you're not persecuted like this, and if you don't feel like a sheep in the midst of wolves, but you feel like you're a wolf, then you're not a Christian. Jesus said, I'm sending you out. Beware of men. They're going to hand you over to the courts. They're going to mock you in the school lunchroom. They're going to say all sorts of nasty things about you. But when they do this, don't worry about what you're to say because, and this is a positive, God will be with you and you'll be given a power by the Holy Spirit to speak when these things come into your life that is from heaven and powerful and will be convicting and true in the light of those who hear you. He says, brother will betray brother to death, a father is child, children will rise up against parents. This is a cost, and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. And so you see the cost. You will be hated by all, and it will enter your own home, and it should, it must. It must enter your home. And you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. And so he says, if you pay the price, you'll be saved. Now, I know that's a double-handed statement. The implication is if you don't pay the price, you won't be saved. You understand that? And this is, it's a challenge. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you'll not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. And what he says is, look, I, I understand it's going to be hard. I, I urge you, when they come after you, do run. Don't sit there and think that you must take it. If you can escape without denying me, by all means do so. Um, and I am coming back. I will return before the end comes, before there's no place on earth that will receive you. Then a disciple is not above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they've called the head of the household Beelzebul, another term for Satan, another name for Satan, how much more will they malign the members of his household? In other words, they're going to they're gonna do to you what they've done to me. They call me Satan. They're going to call you Satan. They're going to say that you are evil and you're going to say, no, I'm righteous, you're evil. And they're going to say, no, 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 you're the evil one. So prepare to be called evil. Prepare for the world to say, you are wicked because you follow Christ. Jesus says it's going to happen. You're going to be called evil. But there is in this statement, this beautiful encouragement, where he says, 
a disciple is not above his teacher, a slave is not above the master. It's, it's enough to be like the teacher for a disciple, a slave to be like the master. If they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? What he says there is, look, if you follow me in this way, you're a member of my household. And that is some household to be a member of. You think of the greatest household that you'd like to be a part of on earth. And it's nothing compared with this household. It's the household of God, where God is the Father, where the Son is calling those of you who follow him brothers. And it is a rich blessing to be part of this household. So he says to you, look, you're going to pay a price in your homes and in the world, but especially in your homes. He keeps emphasizing that. But I'm inviting you into a greater household. Which household do you want to be a part of? Which household is more important to you? Is it the household that's defined by the house that you live in and the kids that you raised? Or is it the household of God? This is an omnipresent daily decision parents must make. And I'm speaking especially to the young in our midst this morning. Learn from the mistakes of the older. Learn from our mistakes. Learn from our successes. Take it to heart and remember the word of God which says to you, you must steal yourself against even your household if you want to belong to God. You must prefer his household to your own. I hope that's really clear to you, that what he's saying right here is, look, you can be a part of my household or you can choose your household, but you don't get them both. Therefore, he says, don't fear them, your household or others, for there's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. And this is a, an interesting statement. Um, when he says this in Luke, it's immediately after upbraiding the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. He says, there's nothing that's concealed that will not be revealed, nothing hidden that will not be made known. And so you can take it in, in several ways, and I think it's, it's important probably to take it in every possible way. One is that he will be seen, and when he comes back, it's going to be glory. He's going to flash through the heavens. There's going to be lightning. The whole world is going to say, whoa. And he's going to call those who have been true to him, those who are part of his household. He's going to call them up into the heavens with him. They're going to meet him. And the whole world is going to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. We didn't know. We didn't. And it's going to be clear. But he's also saying here that if we have been leading a double life and saying, I'm part of your household, but preferring our own, preferring our ease, preferring these things, it's going to be equally clear to the whole world where we stand as it was with the Pharisees. Hypocrisy does not triumph. Hypocrisy does not win. If we say, I'm committed to you, God, but privately we are saying, eh, eh, it will be known. The world will see. It will be evident in our lives and everyone will know it. So he says, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the house, housetops. Don't fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You understand, this is one of those points where the baseline goes down. This isn't the positive reinforcement, you're part of my family. This is the negative reinforcement, saying, look, don't fear the world. Fear God. Fear the one who has the capacity and the power and who will one day send men to hell. Fear him. You understand that that's a threat. That's the pain. And he's saying, look, recognize the pain down here as well as the glory up here. Because if you fear men, 
and don't fear God, then you're in real trouble. All men can do to you is kill you. <laughs> we go, well, that's something, isn't it? It wasn't for him. It wasn't for the apostles. They said, kill me. It wasn't for the early church. It wasn't for so many Christians. No, kill me. I'd rather have Jesus. So he goes on after this negative, and he says, as part of the, the same thought, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Two sparrows sold for a cent, yet every single one of them is, is handled in God's account book. Has its place, has its days, its moments. Even the sparrow, the worm, the centipede that I kill in the shower. God is sovereign, and each one of them is meaningful to him. He says, <laughs> yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And uh, this is an argument from the lesser to the greater, okay? God loves the sparrows, and he knows every one of them. He feeds them. He calls them to their births and to their nests and to their, to their children. He gives them fruitfulness. He knows when they fall. God knows when they fall. Then he says to you, and God knows the number of hairs on your head right now. God has counted and knows. It doesn't count. He just knows. He has them counted. Every hair on your head. That has how intimate his knowledge of you. So it's an argument from the lesson. If God, if God cares about the sparrow, if God cares about the hairs on your head, how much more does he care about you? Right? Formed in his image, for whom his son died. So don't fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, and I want to come back to this one, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And uh, double-edged, it's positive, it's negative. Confess him before men, he will confess us before his Father who is in heaven. Deny him before men, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. Great positive, great threat. Don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. He says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a man against his father. This is, this is the word of God. You understand why I say that here? I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Probably the most terrifying, frightening passage in the Bible for many of us. Certainly one of those that we want to massage sort of to the edges and kind of outside the pages of Scripture. But Jesus goes on and says... He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. You notice that the, the call to carry the cross that we all think of as the great call of the Christian life, the great call to sacrifice and to obedience, carry your cross, comes immediately after his statement that I did not come to bring peace, 
but a sword, to set a man against his father, a daughter-in-law against her mother. If you love your father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. Take up your cross and follow me. What's he speaking about? It's obvious. He's saying your cross is going to be grounded. The hill it's going to be placed in is your own home. That's going to be the location of your cross. For many, many, many of you, this is the cross that you must reconcile yourself to. Young men and women, young families, I say to you, reconcile yourself to this cross and you will be happy. Turn aside from this call of Christ and you will be a miserable parent and ultimately your eyes will grow dim and your ears will stop hearing and you will become just like the world because you have preferred the world in your own home to God. He who has found his life will lose it and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. That is a statement that applies not just to all of life, but to our families. Lose your family and you'll gain it. Keep your family. Say, my family comes before God, and you will lose your family. Maybe not in the world's way of seeing it, but certainly in the Christian's way of seeing it. If you keep your family and they go on vacations with you until you're 80, and everyone's happy, and rich and, and successful, but none of them follow the Lord, you've lost your family, haven't you? You have lost your family because what you've chosen is this life over eternity. And Jesus says, he who receives you receives me. Who receives me receives him who sent me. Receives Anyone who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. In other words, look, live like this. Live helping people like these people he's talking about. Live so that you do what he wants you to do. And he's going to reward you. He's going to give you great reward. You won't lose your reward if you live this way. So I want to talk about this statement that he who confesses me before man. I want to talk about it in general. And I want to talk to you who are parents and children in particular about its implications for your life. In general, this is, I think, the strongest statement in the chapter. It's a, it's a chapter of strong statements, so how can I say it's the strongest? But I think the, if you want to go to the heart of it, therefore everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Is, it encapsulates it. It's, it's everything. It's right there. What does it mean to confess Christ before men? Do you confess Christ before men? This word that's translated confess is, is a Greek word that comes to us through our milk. <laughs> um, well, I guess it's not used for our milk now that I think about it. <laughs> it's homologoi. It means one word. Uh, it's like, what's our milk called? It's homogenized. 
Okay, yeah. So it's all beat into one, you know. And, and what Jesus is saying here is if your life, it's not simply words. Let me, um, somewhere here I have a quote from Kittle, which is the, the most famous Greek commentary about this. Yes, here it is. It says, homologeo, uh, that's the act, it's the verb form, means that I agree with someone on something. It embraces both the fact and event and also the act and the action in which I bear witness to the agreement. So to confess means to say I agree. It's the statement I agree, but it's also all the ways that we live out that agreement. Do you understand? It's not a simple statement. It goes well beyond statement. And why is that important to know? Well, I think it's important to know, for instance, because we have two presidential candidates right now, both of whom say, Jesus is my Lord. Both of them say it. Is there any candidate in the race right now who doesn't say, Jesus is my Lord? I don't know. Maybe there is. Not any major candidate. They all say, Jesus is my Lord. If you reduce confession to simply the words of your mouth, then you're going to be missing the heart of confession. Since the earliest days of the church, it has not been necessary to abandon Christianity altogether, not to be persecuted. All you had to do from the very earliest days on was to comply where the pressure from the world came to you, acting against you, calling you not to heed the ways of Christ. And if you complied in that narrow area where the world was demanding that you separate from Christ, it took it as a statement that you were willing to separate from Christ everywhere and that they could then leave you alone. So in the Roman Empire in the first centuries before Constantine, it was common, you had to prove under the pagan system that you had sacrificed to the Roman gods. And the proof came in the form of a bond or certificate that was given you by authorities vowing a sworn statement that you had actually made your sacrifice. All right? If you got one of those written statements and you presented it to the authorities, you didn't, you were free. All you had to do was have someone say they've done it. Now, for Christians, the question was, you know, I don't have to actually sacrifice. I can pay off the magistrate. I can buy a, a statement. What's, you know, I haven't actually sacrificed I can turn in a statement, I can be free, I can be counted a Roman citizen, and I'm not going to get in trouble. And, and they would let you go on with your worship and all that kind of stuff. You could say the name of Jesus as long as you turned in the script that said that you'd sacrificed. If you turned in that script, you had it easy. A simple thing. Pay some, some denarii to the, to the local magistrate. Pay them off or get a friend. And many times people would swear on your behalf. Get a friend to do it for you and give your name and you're home free. You didn't have to say, I'm not a Christian. I have nothing to do with Christ. All you had to do was get the script, this statement. But you and I understand that if you got that statement, you had denied Jesus. I hope you understand that. 
that when Jesus says, speak of me before men, carry your cross, it's precisely the area where the pressure is coming against you. It's not everything else you do. It's that area where you must stand to be accounted a servant of your master. I hope you understand this. So the world doesn't come with a full court press against you. It doesn't send everyone right into your face. It goes very narrowly, and it says, right here, in this area, bend, turn my way, do it my way. Just here, and I'll let you speak about Jesus all you want. Let's not talk about the world. Parents, it's your children. It's the way your children approach you. They say, look, mom and dad, just give a little bit here. Just give a little bit. And this is precisely the area where you are called to honor God or to lose him. Now, Jesus says, confess me before men and I'll confess you before the Father. Luke, he says, confess me before men and I'll confess you before the holy angels. There's a little difference, right, between the holy angels in heaven and the Father. You can say it's both uh, taking place in heaven, but... If you say Jesus is going to confess us before the Father, well, there's some kind of a sense in there that it could be the, the confession of at, at the last days, the confession that will preserve us from hell, right? And yet Jesus himself is our judge. So why does he need to, to confess us before the Father if he's the judge? If he separates the sheep from the goats, if he is the, the one who sits on the great judgment seat. I think that it probably does have some element of, of Jesus speaking that these are mine before the Father at the end of time when the separation and the judgment take place. But certainly when it says that he will confess us before the holy angels, that's not referring to something that is judgment, is it? What are the angels? Well, they're heavenly beings who serve the saints, right? There is a theological concept that you may have heard of, you may not have, that I want to introduce you to at this point. It's called, it's called the work of Christ that's going on currently, and it's called the session, the session of Christ. Any of you heard of the session of Christ? It's a rather arcane term. It's not, it's arcane means, arcane means it's unusual. Arcane is itself unusual. Session means to be seated. Session comes from to be seated. And that's why we say that the court is in session, the court is seated. It means that the deliberative process is going on. That there is some kind of formal work. Congress is seated when it begins its deliberations, right? Jesus is now in his time of session, which means, according to the Bible, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God now, where he ever lives to do what? To make intercession for the saints, right? And so Jesus is right now taking our prayers, our needs, and carrying them to God and saying, that one is mine. He's living to do this. Certainly, this is part of what is in view when Jesus says, if you confess me before men, 
I'm going to confess you before the Father. It is not simply eternity. It is right here, right now, God knowing your needs and God being called by his Son to meet your needs, to help you. Which means that if you turn aside from the Son of God and the cross that you're to carry in your home, that's planted in the center of your home, if you turn aside from that, and you turn aside and say, at this point the cost is too much, precisely there you lose the intercession of Christ with the Father on behalf of your children. And you think you're gaining your children by easing up, and by not standing for God and letting them have their pride and their vanity and their sexual immorality. Oh, I've got to do it. I've got to let them have it. And you lose the Father in heaven whose care we read in the psalm that we're studying as a congregation together today, Psalm 103, whose care is to a thousand generations of those who love him. You are going to turn from God and hope that you gain your children let me tell you, brothers and sisters, young men and women, the quickest way to lose your family is to put God second. That is the way you lose your family. Not to stand for God in their midst. So I want to close by saying a few things about how you must agree with God, confess God. First, there is ag agreement with what God says. Do you agree with what God says in your home? Do you approve the sins of your children? Do you say, and probably it's going to be in the areas where we ourselves have sinned, ah, you know, vanity is an awful thing, but I sure am glad my daughter's cute. So, you know, I'd rather have her be a little vain than a little ugly. Huh? What do you do? And you end up looking askance at vanity or pride in your son who's great in sports. And isn't that cool? You know, he gets to be the cool guy in the lunchroom that I never was. You agree with your children against God. They grow older and you say, well, okay, you can come home with your girlfriend or you can come home with your male lover. You can come home with the relationship, I, you know, I, I don't like it, but I don't want to lose you. So, you know, you agree with God in what he says. You do not approve the sin of your children. Let me say beyond this, right now, those of you who are young, and I'm, I'm speaking especially to you, your children probably aren't coming to you in many areas and say, approve my sin. But what they do want and what you do extend is the excusing of their sin. When they sin in rebellion against you, when they violate your commands, you say, well, you know, they had too much sugar. As though sugar is an excuse for disobeying God. Or you say, well, you know, my kids, I've got to let them be angry and act out a little bit in school because, you know, they have it hard gets older and my kids you know my kids they weren't accepted in the youth group that's why they're leading the sinful life they weren't accepted and you excuse their sin and blame it on others and it is a turning back from God
You think you're going to keep your child by excusing their sin. Let me add, you agree with what God says by not adding to what he has said. You don't have a subset of rules that are your family rules that are more important than God's rules, and many of us have those. Many of us live by family rules that are not God's rules, and we lose our children by doing so. I saw it time after time growing up as as a child in an evangelical church, parents who said, the number one rule in this family is do not embarrass me. Do not embarrass me. Whatever you do, don't embarrass me. Pastors, missionaries, don't embarrass me. Why do you think I brought up so many times my son Isaiah and the things he's done that are wrong? Have you been here and heard me do this? Do you think it's because I don't love Isaiah? I think some of you may think that. It's precisely because I love my son Isaiah. I love him so much. I see such glory in his life. I'm not going to step back one inch. And before you, I'm going to set an example. My son should be the first to be challenged. Some of you are angry at me because I've challenged your children. You haven't come to church. You've been seething at home. And you have chosen not your children over me, but you've chosen your children over God. Don't embarrass me. I don't want to be embarrassed. Whatever you do, keep it private. Do it in the backseat of the car at night, late, where no one will see. I don't like it, but you know, at least I haven't been made a fool of in front of the congregation. I'd rather it was done in the middle of the congregation so that everyone comes down on it and everyone says, what do you think you're doing? So agree with what God says, but there's a second thing, and I want to close with it. Agree with what God does. You must agree with what God says in his word, not adding to it, not excusing, not approving disobedience. But you must also agree with what God does, and this is a a tremendously important one. As a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth those who love him. Pity is a good thing. God pities his children, but but remember how God pities his children. God pities his children by sending hardships. Those whom God loves, he disciplines. He doesn't back off because he pities you. In fact, if he loves you and pities you, he brings more and more hardships so that you learn his strength, so that you turn to him. I am afraid that many of us lose our children to the devil because we pity them. We are not willing to say the hard things. We are not willing to do the hard things. And when God sends hard things, we're not willing to stand with him versus the things our children are going through. I learned something about this from my father and my mother. Four of us were born with life-threatening illnesses. I told you this many times, but let me just do it again. Four of us, three of them died of them. Fourth child died of another illness that was not congenital, but was childhood leukemia. But there was never the slightest thought in my home growing up that our health was more precious than our obedience to God. And when my children got ill, or when my brothers got ill, 
we were expected still to obey. And we got spanked. And got, my father didn't say, my son's a bleeder. I can't, I can't use a belt on his behind. I know, honestly, you know that there are some parents who would say that. I got the hairbrush, and I got the belt, and I got the bruises. Do not pity your children with a false pity. So they're not the most attractive. Do you think God won't take care of them when it comes time for a mate? So they are ill. Or they have allergies. Or this or that. Are you really going to use what God has put into their life to train them as an excuse for them not to obey God? I think an example of, of a man in this area that we could learn from is Jephthah, the Old Testament judge who made a vow that if God gave him victory, the first thing to come through his door, he would sacrifice to the Lord upon his return home. And what came through his door? His daughter. The first thing, his daughter. And the Bible says he went through with his vow. And she said, give me a couple days to mourn my virginity. She went up a couple days into the hillside, not trips to Disneyland, a few days to go before God with her friends and say, whoa. And then he carried out his vow, an awful vow. But he's listed in Hebrews 11 as a hero of faith. I want to close with this passage that we find in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him to the elders of the city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, the son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst and all Israel will hear of it in fear. Now I think that that's one of the passages in the Old Testament that gives a law that was never ever carried out. Really, I don't think it ever happened. I suspect in the whole history of Israel this never happened. The reason I suspect it never happened is that the parents who took this seriously disciplined their children, carried their cross in their home, honored God above all, and they won their children. Christ interceded with the Father on their behalf, and their children ultimately obeyed. On the other side of the coin, I think there were many who have said to themselves the moment they heard this, I'd never do that. My son could do anything on earth, and I'm not going to have him stoned. And those people stood with their children through sin after sin after sin and never did it. Because they didn't take the call of God to raise children, to honor him above all, seriously. So which is it to be with you, young parents? Which is it to be, your children or God? Steal yourself. Say to yourself, that's going to be my God. Because he'll give me my children. But if I go for my children, I'm going to lose it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. 
I pray, Father, in this congregation that our children will not be lost to the world. May we lead them in repentance by our repentance. May we love them by standing for you even when they want us to stand with them against you. Father, claim the children of this church, the rebels, the far from you, the sheep that have left the fold. Bring them back, Father. Give the parents that have been weak strength. Give our young the ability to stand, the wisdom to know that you are faithful. The faith that says, my God has counted the number of hairs on my head. He will be a God to my children as he promises. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.